0: Let's talk about that speech with Claire and Rachel. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Let's Talk About Speech podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Claire. And we are back for another episode. We hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode, which was all about engaging older students with Hallie Sherman. And we are back for another episode, but this week we have a special guest, Hallie Balkin.
1: So today we have a very special guest, Hallie Bolkin. She's the founder of Little Sprout Speech and she specializes in pediatric feeding. And she also works really closely, we saw from her website with occupational therapists in that area. So we're really excited to learn from her today. This is an area that both Rachel and I are not super familiar with or comfortable with. So we're excited to learn from her and for you guys to hear her story as well. Hallie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So if we just want to start, I guess, with your background as a speech pathologist and how you landed in this area of pediatric feeding. Sure.
2: Well, it was kind of an accident. Um, (laughs) I started in the schools and I did not receive any instruction in my graduate school program on pediatric feeding. It was all adult focused. And I loved it, but I was like, I don't want to work with adults, right? So here I end up working in a school, which is not really what I wanted to do either, but that's where I landed. And they throw me into a classroom with little kiddos who are non-mobile and they're wheelchair bound. And I'm watching their you know their full-time nurses pour purees down their throat and I'm going oh my gosh and I'm looking at their IEP goals and these children happen to have IEP goals for feeding in addition to speech mm-hmm. and language unlike the rest of the children in any other classroom because we weren't allowed to give those other kids any type of feeding goals. Um, And so I'm over here like, "Um, this seems dangerous, I don't know what I'm doing, what the heck do I do? So that started, that just kind of threw me full throttle into taking course after course after course that I could get my hands on to learn how to work with this population. And then I ended up also working with a lot of children with autism And I noticed a pattern with a lot of them. They all seemed very picky. They tended to eat very, you know, bland diets, very bland colors, um, and always had to have the same packaging. And I was like, something is, something's up here. Like, I got to figure out how to help these kids other than just trying to convince them to eat a new food. And so, again, that just threw me further down the rabbit hole of taking more courses. And, you know, at the same time, I was kind of a jack of all trades doing, Right, tr- more traditional speech language pathology work and then also doing like feeding on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't really until I took a nosedive into private practice that I really went even more full throttle with the feeding and um, that was also thanks to being in, in EI for a year. I did EI through our county for a year and I was told the OTs did feeding, but then I was watching with I was watching a lot of these kids struggle, and I was like, I really feel like they could use an SLP OT approach, right? So fast forward, then I go into pediatric, go into private practice, and again, it just kind of threw me even further down a rabbit hole. Had my own kid, she had her issues, went even further down that rabbit hole, and here we are today. (laughs)
0: I was just going to say, I feel like you never learn something as quickly as you do when you're like thrown into the thick of it or you have a new student on your caseload and you don't have a lot of experience with it. You like scramble for all of that research and Mm. CEUs or books or whatever you can find. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So can you tell us um, what your current caseload looks like right now then?
2: Sure. Sure. So at this point in time, I have a very reduced caseload, um, being that I'm running the private practice. I'm also homeschooling my five-year-old, which was not in the plans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and we, uh, we launched um, some online courses. So with all of that going on, I had to take a step back. But the kids that I do treat, the few kids I have left on my case co- caseload, they're all pediatric feeding, mm-hmm. um, you know, various some of their more, more traditional feeding, you know, where they don't really have another diagnosis aside from, you know, pediatric dysphagia or just feeding difficulties. Um, and then I've got kiddos who are, who have Down syndrome, they're on the spectrum. Um, so that's my feeding side of things. And then I've got the myo side. So I've got kids and adults okay. with orofacial myofunctional disorders, tongue ties, you know, prepping them for, mm-hmm. for, for nectomy, their, their procedures and all that fun stuff and just teaching them proper oral habits. So that, that really yeah. makes them my personal caseload.
1: So just a side question to that with the pandemic, are you doing majority over telepractice or are you able to do your feeding therapy in person?
2: So I'm doing all of mine over telepractice. Yeah. My team is split. Um, A majority of them are still pretty much telepractice, but we do have a handful of clinicians that are traveling to families. Some are doing outside sessions. Some are comfortable going into the homes. It's really Mm
0: -hmm. case by case. Okay. Very and cool. I thought my like articulation therapy was hard via teletherapy. Right. You can only imagine feeding therapy through a computer when you're not there. That must be really challenging.
2: Well, I'll tell you one thing. So one of the reasons why when I opened my private practice, I did it going into the homes was because I felt like being in and preschools and daycares mostly, Like I felt like being in that child's natural environment was so helpful. So Fortunately, while we don't get to like put our hands on the kid's face, like we are still getting a a different type of glimpse into the home because now the parent is in control in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it is leading to a little bit more of like parent coaching. But also what I've noticed is that some of our parents have become more involved versus when we're just there and they've had to be the therapist carrying out what we're telling them. And it's, you know, in some cases it it doesn't work for every case, but in some cases it's actually propelled them through therapy faster, which is incredible. So it's kind of an interesting experiment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's very cool. So could you tell us a little bit about your pediatric feeding screening process? Rachel and I looked at um, your free packet. If you get on the mailing list, she sends you guys a free screening checklist. It's amazing. Um, Yeah. Yeah, especially for beginners. It's laid out very nicely, but could you tell us a little? bit about that
2: absolutely so first obviously you want to get the packet um but the really nice thing about the packet is that we have you look at the milestones and really get a good grasp on not just feeding skills but fine motor or gross motor you know overall oral motor development and kind of look at like where is this child and that that chart that's in there focuses on birth to 36 months. And so obviously if you get a kid who doesn't have some of those skills beyond 36 months, you're kind of like, Oh, I know we need to, we got to work on this. Mm -hmm. Um, but even some of your younger, younger kiddos you'll notice are like falling back. And it's also, we've been told it's a really great resource to show other professionals and families, Mm -hmm. uh, because it just makes it so visually, you know, it just, it's visually pleasing. It kind of explains it all really nicely. And so from there, um, we have a checklist of the 50 most common Uh, issues or red flags, if you will, in feeding that are on the list. And so um, once you do that, you go through, you move all of your findings over to the feeding screening results checklist or little, like we made a little grid. So it'd be really easy to transfer everything over. And then from there, you can see like, do we need further assessment? Do we need to make referrals. And we've even included like a little referral page where you can like write out a referral. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just really important to kind of always go back to the milestones. Obviously not every kid is going to follow milestones perfectly, but when it comes to oral motor skills, we really can't skip things. And right. that goes for like, you know, motor skills in general. And that's why we included some of the physical, you know, the more gross motor skills in there as well. They're all interconnected. Um, so beyond all that, you know, we really need to Use this while we watch a kid eat a snack, and when we watch them eat a snack, we can glean so much information about what they're doing. Um, we can, you know, if you have access to a caregiver, so you can ask some questions. That's always great. But I know, depending on the environment or setting that you might be in, that might not always be readily available. Um, but you know, we we want to ask certain questions, and so some of the things that we look for, like, are are they really messy eaters? Do they eat less than twenty foods? Reportedly, that's going to come from the parent um, or the caregiver. You know, are they particular about certain brands or packaging? Do they have a bland food diet or a diet that's just lacking a variety of colors? Um, have they cut out foods over time? You know, is it getting really stressful? Is it is mealtime just stressful? Like, does, does the parent feel like? they need to make a different meal for that child than they do for the rest of the family, Um, because that's never, that's never fun. I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, do you, you know, it's like, does the child have a hard time eating in the lunchroom, in restaurants, at friends' houses? Um, I've had parents who say, you know, I have to carry a peanut butter sandwich in my purse everywhere we go. And like, so does mom have to physically bring something specific so that she knows that child will have something to eat? Um, You know, and then from a more motor standpoint, Do we see the child using their hands to push food into their mouth and like push food around their mouth? Um, Do we notice any like pocketing in the cheeks? Are they gagging on foods a lot? Do they have this like chronic cough after they drink or or swallow, um, you know, a food bolus? Like have they had any choking incidents? That's a big one. So I mean there's obviously a lot more, but those are just some main red flags that a parent or a new clinician can look into. Um, because once we establish that those concerns exist, then using that packet we talked about is a really great next step. And then if referrals need to be made, you know, obviously we can make some referrals out to appropriate providers. Um, and then obviously the type of provider is going to de- depend on the concern that we have for that child.
0: So then building on that, if you guys determine that there is a need for um, feeding therapy, what are some of the tools or techniques that you guys commonly use for that? Sure. So, I mean, we are, we're obviously
2: always going to do an assessment right. after a screening, right? This is just a screener that I was talking about. So always go into an assessment. We really advise you don't use the screener as an assessment, standalone assessment tool. You can use it as part of a greater assessment if you want. Um, But I like to use like a food checklist to get more information from the parent because parents, while they're great reporters, they're not going to remember everything their child eats. And the checklist that we use also looks into like What foods do they use to eat that they cut out? Like, what foods would you like them to eat? What are some of their, what do you think that they would like to eat, but that they're really struggling with right now? And like, what foods should we absolutely not even touch right now because that's (laughs) gonna just send them running out the door. Um, So I love our food checklist. I think that's a really great tool to use. And I personally work from both a feeding and a mild perspective for all of my cases. I've, I've taken what I've learned over the past 11 years and really combined everything into my process. So it's like, I don't really have like one particular technique. I use like a really like a therapy bag full of techniques, which Mm -hmm. is why we try to put this together for everybody. Um, and you know, my first goal is always airway. I airway first. So I look at, how is this child breathing? If this child can't breathe properly, there's no point in working on their feeding skills because they're not going to be able to prep the food properly or swallow comfortably. You know, if they have enlarged tonsils or enlarged adenoids or just other inflammation going on, maybe they have allergies and there's certain things we can look at that point towards that. So I'm always looking at like airway first is kind of like my technique. Um, From there, if we feel like their airway is okay and they're a kid who has like this mouth wide wide open um, and they seem to be mouth breathing and they're a messy eater, like then I'll start to work with them on just getting the mouth closed, getting the tongue up in their mouth, breathing through the nose. Um, and then beyond that, you know, actual like tool tools that I use, I use things like Z-Vibes or Bite Blocks. Um, I'll use coffee straws like as a target to like touch the tongue to. I love my light scalpel. Um, those are probably my four favorite tools, like in physical tools that I will use in therapy. Um, but really, honestly, I'll use whatever that child responds to that, uh, that inches us towards their goal. Like I am not particular towards like one particular, like physical tool by any means. They're, for me, tools are just merely a way to reinforce the technique or the end goal. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, if you saw me in therapy, it probably looks very different than your average feeding therapist. because. I'm getting 18 month olds, like working on like moving their tongue independently of their jaw, their lips, their cheeks, you know, which a lot of therapists are not necessarily thinking about yet. Cause that's more of a myo twist on pediatric feeding. So, so yeah, so it's a little bit different for me.
1: That's great. And we know that you work really closely with occupational therapists. And I feel like a question that I even get a lot is for feeding therapy, what's what's kind of the difference between an OT and an SLP in that sense? Um, Because I used to work at a clinic where um, it was an outpatient clinic and the occupational therapists all did feeding and none of the SLPs even went in there. There was a feeding room and it was only the OTs. So um, I know we overlap so much, but how would you kind of address that the difference between it or if there is any difference?
2: So, so there's definitely a difference based on where you work. Mm -hmm. Um, I know a lot of NICUs, for example, traditionally have OTs in there as the primary feeding therapist, but then there's other ones that have SLPs. And so I think there's a big overlap. And whenever anybody asks like specifics, like, well, what's in scope? Like, I don't get into all that. I'm like, you can go to AOTA AOTA and like, look at their scope and you can go to ASHA and look at their scope. But I think when it comes down to it, quite honestly, we overlap so much in what we're able to do Mm -hmm. um, that I really feel like we should be working together as a team you know, uh, SLPs and OTs together because just because we have that title attached to our name doesn't mean that we have the training that we think one, the other one might have. And so like I've met plenty of OTs who have far more feeding experience than other SLPs and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even met some SLPs that have more sensory-based training than some OTs out there. So mm-hmm. I think that it's just, it's important to know more so who you're talking to, what service they're offering, how you can complement each other. Um, But really the beauty for me comes from being able to collaborate with SLPs and OTs together on a feeding case, because I think both of us bring so much to the table. You know, the OT definitely has more knowledge about, the core and, you know, the, I always say like from the neck to the the pelvis, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're really like, well, yes, we, we look at the esophagus and all that fun stuff. And we know more about the trachea. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to really understanding like how we can support each other. We also under have to understand things like posture, postural support, and like what is pelvic versus anterior, you know, pelvic tilt, um, or a- posterior versus anterior pelvic tilt. Did I say that right?
0: <laughs> um, you know, and
2: all these little nitty-gritty things that like so many people don't even realize is a thing, right, until you start to collaborate with your other colleagues. So I think the big takeaway here is that while there technically are differences maybe in scope of practice, technically we can both do pediatric feeding, and what, the, what one profession brings to the table versus the other is going to depend on their specific education and experience, and I think we really need to be collaborating with each other.
0: So you made a really good point when you started. You said you only had um, like one course or something on pediatric feeding, and Claire and I actually went to graduate school together, and I can tell you we had one day in one course that covered pediatric feeding and that was it. So I think the ability to collaborate with an OT Mm -hmm. um, on something like, like a feeding case would be huge because unfortunately graduate programs aren't like standardized, like all SLPs aren't getting the same exposure. And I can tell you right now, if I had a feeding client come onto my caseload, either in my private practice or I work at an elementary school, I would be lost just because I don't have a lot of exposure to it. And like I said, we had one part of one class. So I think that collaboration part is huge.
2: Yeah, well, my, my course was actually adults only. So it was, yeah, I got zero, p. I got zero pediatric feeding as well, which is why I'm like on a mission to change that because it's just, it's incredible to understand that, well, while this is in our scope of practice and people assume that we know what we're doing, like nobody's teaching this in grad school, it's insane. And adult like dysphagia therapy is a completely different game than pediatric feeding there. There is really nothing similar about the two.
0: (laughs) which is kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, aside um,
2: from where it all goes after you swallow, there is nothing similar about the it. Right.
0: <laughs> so building off that, cause we know parents are a really important part of the team also. So what are some things that parents can implement and kind of monitor at home to support appropriate feeding development and whether it's based on a treatment that you're working with or what recommendations do you, would you have for that?
2: Sure. So I've got a bunch of different recommendations. Um, Some things that parents can do at home that, you know, if you have a baby who is still in infancy and let's say they're less, they're younger than six months, Plan to take away the pacifier by six months of age. Um, if you haven't done it yet, that's okay. <laughs> no one no one here is shaming you or wants to make you feel bad. That's not our goal. Um, but the, the reason behind six months of age is that that's when it starts to develop into an actual habit. And so if you can remove it before six months of age, your life as a parent is going to be so much easier and your baby's orofacial development will be more optimal. Um, that said, if you miss the window and let's say your child uses a really popular wobbenab <laughs> or like one of these like you know animals hanging off the pacifier <laughs> we don't want a child mobile you know, crawling around, walking around with something hanging out of their mouth. It feels like not a lot of weight, but it is too much weight. So what we always recommend is cut that, cut the animal off and let them keep it. They can be a little lovey um, and then wean them off the pacifier. And one of the best ways that I recommend parents do that, that don't really have support otherwise is to use something like there's like something called the Lily system. Um, And you can get the Lily system. I think at like Bed Bath & Beyond or Amazon. Mm -hmm. And it basically walks you through weaning your child off the pacifier in a safe way, in a way that will, a lot of our parents just say it's very simple and they feel sane (laughs) while doing it. Um, So like no hard feelings, but you know, the other, on the flip side, if your child needs that pacifier, which you may not know, like if it's helping to support their airway while they're sleeping or, you know. We don't know what purpose it might be serving. They might put their thumb in their mouth and then become a thumb sucker. and well, That's
0: where I am right now. I have a one-year-old and his favorite thing in the world is his thumb. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's tricky because you can't take the thumb away. The thumb right? away. <laughs> I mean, so what we do in that case is we say, don't sweat it. You know, when they, when they turn four, you can basically convince them that it's their idea and get rid of that, you know, that thumb sucking habit. in sometimes like as few as 10 days. So it's not worth like the anxiety and all the pressure and everything that comes along with it to try and like fight a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a one-year-old on getting that finger out of the mouth. You know, is it ideal? No, but like we do see palates and mouths actually change shape very quickly um, after the thumb comes out, even in like a four, five, six-year-old at times. So, you know, I tell parents like, Don't sweat it. If you feel like your child has any like open mouth breathing or snoring or anything like that, that might be a good sign that you want to look into sleep disordered breathing and make sure that they're not, you know, experiencing any sleep apnea or anything at night. Um, Sometimes that is what it points towards, but not always. Um, But it is a good reason to definitely rule that out. Um, So that's my little, my little pacifier uh, conversation. Then my next tip is on cups. And this is a big one. So pacifiers are pretty big, but the cups, I think, are bigger. <laughs> we get a ton mm-hmm. of questions about this. Um, and on my Especially Instagram, right I- now.
1: I feel like it's a oh, hot yeah. topic right now on social sure. media.
2: 100%. And you know what? It's funny because as a speech pathologist, my kids used a 360 cup. And then one day I decided to drink out of it. And I was
0: like, oh, no, 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 no. This that is That was horrible. me. And I was like, this is not right. I don't like everyone raves about it. Which is but crazy girl, because-
1: again. And all the SLPs I've ever worked with have always said to use them. Yes. So it's interesting that now well, people are straying away from them. So
2: I think what happened like in the history of like how this all went down was we were all like no hard spouted sippy cups and we still agree those are not only are they bad for oral development they're dangerous kids actually end up in the er from from like face planting on the hard spouted oh. sippy cups and they go into the palate so they're oh. dangerous yeah, yeah. So we tell parents like do not use hard spouted sippy cups um but and that's for those various reasons but then the 360 came out and we're all like wow this is genius it's like an open cup there's no hard it's like silicone you can pull it all apart to wash it run it through the dishwasher it doesn't and spill. Oh my gosh, miracle, right? <laughs> and, then, uh, and then like 10 years down the road, SSLPs actually drink from it for the first time. We're <laughs> like, oh my gosh, they have to bite and like clamp down and thrust their tongue forward to mm. suck the water out. Like it is not, it is, it's not, it's the complete opposite of what we want them to be doing. Right. Um, so some of the tips I give to parents, if they are using like a 360 cup is you can pop the lid off. And if your child does not have any feeding issues, then they should be able to manage the flow. <clears throat> it slows it down a little bit compared to like a complete open cup, but it is faster than obviously with that lid on. So, you know, if your child does have any swallowing issues, I don't advise it because they're gonna have a hard time with that water coming at them mm-hmm. much faster. Um, I think munchkin or one of the brands recently came out with like a new top i think it's munchkin for their 360. it's a plastic top that has a straw on it and so you can actually pop that onto your current 360 cups you don't have to throw them out you can keep them it's really cheap go on amazon like search like munchkin you know plastic lids at, for 360 and i did order them and Honestly, we haven't tried them because I threw out all the bases of the cups so I me to like buy an actual 360 cup to like demo this online. Um, but they look, I've heard they're great and they look like any traditional, you know, more traditional straw cup. Um, so what I do recommend to parents is like at six months, it's a great time to start with open cups. They're messy. It's okay. Just give them some water and like use a, so like Easy Peasy, for example, has some great cups and the reason I like them is because they're a little bit more narrow at the top at versus the wider base. And the base is actually weighted. So when they put the cup Mm -hmm. down, it's not going to flip over. So it kind of helps them like learn to like put it down and then it's, I think it's also more rewarding for the child that they're not putting down the cup and it's spilling every time because they're just yeah. going to get frustrated if that happens. Um, but, you know, we recommend filling it like almost to the top. They have it in like a two ounce version, I believe, and then a four ounce version. So you can kind of work your way up to, so it's not a ton of water if it spills, plus it's more age appropriate, like size wise mm-hmm. um, for the child. So I love that as a first step. And then beyond that, straw crops are great. I introduced straw cups at six months of age. Some people wait till eight months. Um, My kids were on them early. And for straw cups, I really love anything that is angled and like a silicone straw. So that one, if it hits their mouth, it's not going to puncture them or cut them. Um, Two, it's angled so that they don't have to change the direction of their head and their neck. They can basically lift the cup up and bring it straight to their face. Um, And... And yeah, if it's short, we want a short straw too, so that it's basically going to their lips and it's not like holding their tongue down in their mouth. Mm-hmm. You can always cut a straw down, but you know, depending on the type of straw, it could get sharp, it could have pieces fall off. So you just have to be really careful with that. Um, and I know that this can be super important because I know a lot of daycares and preschools require closed cups. So that's where I tell parents, go with a straw cup. Um, some of the great ones that I love are the Avent B- Bendy cups, and they look like a little like dinosaur. Um, <laughs> There's also the Think Baby Thinkster cup. Um, That's a great one as well. And those come in in metal for parents who are more like you know environmentally conscious or they don't want like a lot of plastic or anything in their house. Those are great without having to go to like glass. Um, And then um, what is the other one I love? I also love, oh, so Funtainer Makes a good one, uh, the Thermos Fugu or Fugo, Fugo. I always get that wrong. Um, and that one's smaller. And then when they get a bit bigger, they have like the Thermos, um, the Fontainers are the bigger size, the Fugo mm-hmm. are the smaller ones, but they kind of can grow into them. You know, my second child was using a full-blown fontainer at the age of 12 months because that's what her big sister had, and she already cared at that <laughs> at that age. So, um, so yeah, so that's definitely a, a big topic, I think. Yes. Because, you know, when it comes to cups, and I can definitely, I've got a couple more tips to share as well. But you know, if you guys have any questions about cups, I'm happy to answer.
1: No, that was perfect. I think again, it's just been it's been hard to see all the social media because you know, there's some conflicting opinions on it. And it's nice to hear from someone who specializes in the field instead of just having an opinion. kind of on what your rationale is. So I think that was really good. And we will link all of those that Hallie just said on our website, because I think it would be good to have kind of a go-to list of specific things to give parents. Um, because that's what I always struggle with is I'm like, Oh, we'll use a cup with a straw, but I have no idea what brands there are or what kind of cups are the best. So, um, I love that you gave some specific brands. That was really helpful. Yeah. Hallie, that's think- the biggest
0: question I get. yeah, I was going to ask if you guys still recommend like the honey bear cup, like teaching the sucking reflex, because I know that was super helpful for my son, Henry. He was really struggling with like learning how to use a sippy cup and that helped immensely. And I have recommended that to a couple of my parents that struggle with the same thing.
2: Yes, 100%. It's funny you say that. So I have a post like on my Instagram and I have like, all, but those cups we just talked about are listed plus maybe another one or two. But then at the bottom, I'm like if you're having trouble, try mm-hmm. these. And so I have both the trainer, um that you can use to teach like open cup drinking and it helps you like slow the flow a little bit. It kind of looks like a bottle, but it has like a different top on it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: then I recommend the Honey Bear because the Honey Bear is perfect for teaching that that straw drinking. So yes, Absolutely.
0: There's so many options out there. And I feel like, you know, like you had mentioned the hard top isn't good. And I feel like we know that from like a speech standpoint, because that's our job. But like when you walked on the aisle at Target, there's like, too many choices. That can be very Mm. overwhelming.
2: Yeah. And that's why I like to give parents like these specific recommendations. I'm like, you don't have to use these cups that I mentioned, but look at them, look what they look like. It's like, understand like what the top of them looks like, what the straw looks like on it. So that if you are going to go with another cup just make sure it looks similar and then mm-hmm. it's not like a hard spatted sippy it's not a 360 the the you know it's not a really hard straw for a child who might like bite down on it and clamp down on it and hurt themselves when they're starting plus not too long of a straw that's going to like hold the tongue down because we want the tongue going up when they swallow right. um so all these things that parents don't really know to look for 100% yeah
1: that was so helpful um i guess another tip i think we we're going to talk about is picky eaters because i think that's another uh, question I get a lot is when does picky eating become cause for treatment, as opposed to it just being kind of a behavioral picky eating thing?
2: Absolutely. So um, I have a, I have like three tips that we can um, share that early on can kind of help avoid you know avoid that picky eating. But I will what I will say first is that. Picky eating, true picky eating is a milestone. It is something that toddlers do. They become pickier. Like I have a two and a half year old right now. She went through a couple week phase where she was like barely eating dinner. And my entire family was like, Oh my gosh, she's not eating. Why isn't she eating? I'm like, guys, first of all, she's fine. Like, she's not like falling off the weight charts. Like, she had enough earlier in the day. And they just go through phases like that where, like, the quantity and what they eat changes, the foods they want to eat change. It really becomes a problem when it happens for, like, let's say more than four weeks. Like, around three weeks, I know parents start to get really concerned, sometimes sooner than that. But by the time it's starting to, like, you know, verge on three weeks, maybe call and make an appointment for an eval. Um, and if it's going on, Past four weeks, keep that eat all appointment um, because you know that's really when it's no really no longer really that traditional picky eating. Now we're becoming we're kind of getting into that I call it selective eating, and so it's and the other thing I'll put in there as a disclaimer too is that kids are not lazy, kids do not. Um, Want to be kids are not stubborn, like, yes, two year olds are stubborn, and yes, they have their little they kind of step into their own, they realize they can say no, like, there's a lot of cognitive changes happening at that age. But when it comes to food and eating, children don't want to not eat. And we get a ton of parents who call my office and they say, My child's really lazy, my child's really stubborn, they're refusing to eat, da 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 da. And I'm like, Please don't call your child lazy, stubborn, or any of those things, like call your child a child and understand that like yes, maybe they're pushing boundaries, but at the same and and yes, there could be behaviors attached to this, but there's likely something else going on if this has been going on for more than four weeks. So like all bets are off until you meet with us. You can't say anything negative to or about your child <laughs> until we meet and then we'll we'll have a conversation.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's super helpful, I think, because that's a strong topic as well right now. Yeah. Um
2: and I have a few tips too if you want yeah me to share. go for it. Yes. So when, you know, and this can apply to any ages, but this is gonna sound like it's more geared towards like the earlier, you know, months when, when they're starting solids um, around six months or so. My biggest tip, and but again, this one can apply later, is let your child get messy. If you are gonna have anxiety over it, like find somebody else to feed your child and leave the room. <laughs> they will feed off of your anxiety, number one. Number two, it's like strip them naked. If, you, if it's warm enough in your household, Let them get naked, put a bib on them. Um, Or really, if you can avoid putting a bib on them, like don't because the more they feel and taste and see and smell, like all the senses, they touch, you know, the more interested, one, they're going to become in the foods, but two, the more their sensory system is going to learn to adapt to a variety of different foods and textures and temperatures and tastes and smells and so on and so forth. Um, my other big tip is do not wipe their face or scrape their face between every bite. Um, napkins, I, I joke with my husband and his family, I'm like, you guys ruined Lily because you had to wipe her face between every bite with a napkin and she's a sensory feeder <laughs> now. Um, and, you know, she might've been anyways, who knows, but I was like, please let her get messy. And like, I, I look at her clothing that I'm passing on to like my two-year-olds and I'm like, there's maybe stains on three entire outfits and we did not strip her naked to eat. Like, this is, this is not okay. Okay. <laughs> And I look at my two-year-old now and I'm like, I can't pass on any of her clothes because they are so messy and stained. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, But seriously, you know, their sensory systems need this input. So I tell parents like, embrace the mess, embrace the mess. And if you have to put them in the bathtub afterwards, that's fine. But let them enjoy the meal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, That's definitely like tip number one. And then number two, I tell parents like, let your child explore any utensils, obviously age-appropriate ones, um, and even work on self-feeding. It might not actually be self-feeding in the early days, but this is how they learn how to pick them up. They develop different skills, different motor skills. um, You know, let them dab it in the puree, let them put their hands in the puree on the tray, and just let them put it all over their face. Because again, this kind of ties into number one, like this is how children learn. Um, And then number three really is after that initial, initial introduction, feed your child a variety of foods, like try to change up. I think parents, you know, do the in, the initial intro. And then a lot of us, me included, we get stuck in just like the foods that we typically keep in our own house. And so, and if you're a busy parent and you're like, I just need to get my child fed some healthy foods. Like, I feel you. I feel you 100%. Like I enjoyed cooking before I had kids. After kids, I'm like, I don't have time to do this. So I was like, you know what? They're eating like healthy organic foods. It's great. And then I realized like I need to change up what they're eating. Like they need different fruits to explore, different veggies to explore, different proteins, different, you know, carbs, like all the things. And so I always tell parents like look at what's seasonal and fresh in your area and explore like some, try to bring home like one new thing every week. It doesn't have to be crazy bring home like one new thing. It could be a new fruit or a new veggie, um, even a new protein, but just one, just one. You don't have to do like one of each category, just one. And then, you know, once your child is old enough, like even by like 15 months or so, involve them in cooking activities. They can put
0: things in a bowl, they can stir, and they love to help at that age. So I can tell you right now that Henry eats way more foods than I do. I feel like my pickiness has been ingrained in me since I was like six. So I eat like a lot of the same foods, but my husband actually went to culinary school. So he has like a very refined, I want to cook all of these different things. And Henry eats like gourmet meals. And I'm still like, I'll have chicken, and butter (laughs) (laughs) noodles.
2: That's so funny. I, you know what? I can't tell you how many parents, after we meet the child, the parents are like, um, "So I have the same problem. <laughs> like, Do I need an evaluation?" And I'm like, "I don't work with adults, but if you, if your child has a tongue tie, then you might have a tongue tie, and then in that case, I can work with you because that is up my alley." But you would, you wouldn't believe like how, how frequently that comes up in conversation. It's very, it's way more common than you think. And I think there's a much larger percentage of the population that is quote-unquote picky than anybody realizes.
0: Totally.
1: Absolutely. So I guess what are some closing red flags that we should look for as speech pathologists or even as parents if we're concerned with our children um, with feeding issues?
2: Absolutely. So I think the biggest ones that I mentioned before were really if your child is cutting out foods, if they, have, you know, eat, eat less than 20 foods, if they're super messy beyond like toddler age, like if the food is literally just falling out of their mouth, they can't contain it. They chew with their mouth open beyond like three years of age. You know, we're really seeing that they're having a hard time getting the food in, moving the food around without like using their hands or something external to help them. Um, you know, they're... Again, they're just very picky and they have a limited um, variety of foods, variety, limited variety of colors. Maybe they're very specific about the, the labels that have to be on the foods they eat because they know those are safe. You know, Those are some of those big red flags we talked about. Um, I think as far as monitoring goes to kind of like bring this full circle, if your child has any of those red flags that we talked about, it's definitely time to call for a feeding evaluation. Um, like our parents who call are always amazed. They're, they're amazing at knowing when something is going on and they're also I always say the best reporters and advocates for their children and I think that unfortunately they have been brushed off so many times by the pediatrician or other providers that they almost feel like I'm just overreacting um so like if you're a parent listening whether you're a therapist and a parent or just a parent and you're not a therapist and you're like this is so out, f- outside, you know, outside left field. Mm-hmm. I don't know really what I'm talking about, but something just doesn't feel right. Like I tell parents, follow your gut. Don't let anybody brush you off. Like you are your child's best advocate. It's better to have an eval done and learn that things are on track as opposed to waiting and waiting and waiting until things snowball out of control and you just can't take the mealtime stresses anymore. Um, so, you know, I definitely say, you know, stand up. Don't wait for that pediatrician. If you need a referral, sometimes, even if you reach out to, a speech pathologist and into their office or their clinic, you know, they may actually be able to then go back to the pediatrician for you and say, hey, we need a referral for this evaluation. And that might be the way to get over that hump if you feel like you're kind of hitting a wall. Um, and you know, the last thing I think we should remember is that what we talked about before, that we, you know, toddlers go through picky eating stages. And when it lasts more than that three to four weeks, that's when we definitely want to move toward getting them a feeding evaluation.
1: Yeah. And I love that. I think that's true across the board with speech and language as well. And I I tell parents the same thing, follow your gut, because if you feel like they are not developing the way that they should be, even if you're just comparing it to a book that you've read or whatever it is, it doesn't ever hurt to get the evaluation. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, I think that's it. Thank you so much for joining us. We learned so much and I appreciate you explaining it so well, like in ways that I understand because I feel like some of the more technical terms that I'm not familiar with. Um, That's what makes it hard when I'm reading about it because I have to keep going back and forth because I'm not as familiar with some of those terms. And I know that parents probably appreciate that too. Um, But for our listeners out there, I also know that Hallie, you have started Feed the Peds, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? It just opened.
2: Yes. Yeah. So we actually, funny enough, launched this beginning of you know March when the world was going crazy. And <laughs> um, and it's actually been amazing. We've had over 350 SLPs and OTs already go through the course in the two times awesome. that we've launched it so far. So we're really excited. But yeah, we just opened doors today to Feed the So If you go to feedthepeds.com, all the details are there. It's basically a 12-week course to becoming a pediatric feeding therapist with a focus on early development. So like birth to you know 36 months of age is the big focus um and we to sum it up we basically talk about typical development because you can't do anything if you don't know what typical development looks yeah. like and then we go into assessment and treatment um, of pediatric feeding disorders we talk about we have a whole module dedicated to tethered oral tissues like tongue tie because that's a hot topic right now um, as well as myo and how you apply that to the birth to three age because again no one's really talking about that right. and then we go into um, Medical complexities. There's just so many medical complexities out there that need to be addressed when working with this population, and so um, we take a deep, deep nose dive into that. But it's great. We get a ton of questions. So the last thing I'll say is that um, every week, one module is released. It's pre-recorded, so you can watch it on your own time. The only live thing that happens starts with module three and goes through module 12 which is basically we give you a case study each week and starting with module three and we have a live zoom each week in the evenings to go over the case study but it's recorded so you know yeah we know people can't make it live everything's recorded everything's in there and we just got 4.05
0: 4.05 ASHA CEUs for it. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is an accomplishment. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's that, so that cool. A labor of love. <laughs> yes. And I love the case studies because I feel like you can, you collaborate so much. So instead of trying to teach yourself and then trial and error with these real kids that you're working with, I love that you get to have some case study experience. That's, that's amazing. So definitely check that out. Um, and then you can also find Hallie on littlesproutspeech.com. That's her website. And then she's on, you're on Facebook and Instagram too. Yep. At
2: Hallie Vulcan on Instagram. Yep.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We enjoyed talking to you so much. This has been great.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks. Yep.
0: Thanks. So if you guys follow us on Instagram, you saw that this past week we had an awesome giveaway for a feeding kit from Arc Therapeutic. And we just wanted to go over what that kit includes. Arc was so generous to donate that to us so we could do that awesome giveaway. So if you haven't had the chance to check out their page, go ahead and do so. But that kit will include a couple different things. There are actually two different versions of the kit. And depending on whoever wins and whatever their needs are, that's the one that they will receive. But there is the baby and toddler kit, and that's for ages six months to three years. And then there's the child and adult kit, and that's for three years and up. There's no age limit for that one. But back to the baby one, that includes a bunch of different things. There is the honey bear bottle, like we had mentioned with Hallie, which is awesome. If you guys aren't familiar with that, basically it helps teach your little ones the sucking reflex. So If they're struggling with sippy cups, just like Henry was, the awesome thing about the honey bear is you have the ability to squeeze it a little bit, cue them to take a sip, and a little bit of water comes up and out of the straw into their mouth, and it helps them learn that sucking reflex. It's awesome, I swear by it, they're wonderful. Um, That kit also includes a Z-Vibe, a bunch of different tips for the Z-Vibe, the mini tip, the soft brush tip, bite and chew tip, both smooth and textured. It includes a bite tube tip, um, a soft spoon tip, a hard textured spoon tip, a mouse tip. Um, They make really cute friendly ones for the littles um, to enjoy so that comes with a ton of stuff and really the only difference between the two kits are just um, the actual tools or attachments are just bigger in that child and adult kit Um, for the bigger mouse. There's also the more discreet straw cup for older kids and adults. So it doesn't necessarily look like a honey bear, but you can get the same thing done with it. So there's a ton of awesome stuff in there. We're so pumped that so many people um, entered the giveaway and we're about to find out who won. Yeah, and
1: like Rachel said, definitely check out the website. If you want even more information on it. Um, again, ARC has been amazing so far in supporting us as a podcast and informing us of what's out there because we really didn't know. So they are an awesome company um, and we would love to support them. So the giveaway winner, I'm so excited to announce who the giveaway winner is. Um, Drum roll. Her name is Melissa Herrera. And I am sure that I botched your name, Melissa. So I'm so sorry about that. But if you could please contact us at some point um, before. Wednesday. So it's Tuesday sometime today. Um, Contact us through our Instagram or through our email. Um, The end of the episode, you'll hear a bunch of different ways to contact us. So however you want, just shoot us a message and we will make sure that your information gets to ARC so you can claim your Wonderful prize. Yay. And congrats. Yay. We also wanted to just um follow up real quick about Hallie Balkan and the feed the Peds. Um Um, course, sorry, course that she has. I was looking at my notes. We wanted to make sure that you guys knew for CFs and grad students, it's 50% off. And then for OT students, we know you don't have a um, clinical fellowship like speechies do, but if you're one year out of grad school, so anybody within grad school and then one year out, so again, that would be CFs or OTs that are in their first year of experience will receive 50% off of this. And all you have to do is contact support at feedthepeds.com, And um, again, for this 12 week course that Hallie Bulkin and her um, associates are putting on, you would get some money off of it, which is wow. awesome. And it sounds like it's going to be a really cool course. Rachel and I were talking about it. We're really excited to hear the feedback from that. I'm sure I know she's got a lot of people signed up already. And if you are looking into becoming specialized in feeding or have feeding kids on your caseload, it's definitely for you.
0: For sure. And those are awesome resources, both um, Hallie and her programs and ARC Therapeutic. And the other great thing about ARC is they're a family-owned business, which we love mm-hmm. supporting the smaller companies. So that wraps up another episode, you guys. Thanks so much for listening and joining. As always, you can find me, Rachel, on Instagram at super speech. And if you or anyone you know is in need of speech therapy, in Southeast Michigan, feel free to email me at speech is super sweet at gmail.com. You can also follow us on the Let's Talk About Speech podcast, Facebook and Instagram pages. So make sure you give those a like and a follow. Don't forget to check out our website. Let's talk about speech.com. And if you guys listen on Apple podcast, you guys can rate review and subscribe. So please make sure you do that. Send us a screenshot and we will shout you out.
1: And then you can find me, Claire, on Instagram at kindly underscore speech or on my Facebook page, kindly speech LLC. And if anyone in Virginia or Ohio is in need of speech teletherapy, please contact me, kindly speech, LLC, at gmail.com. And then Rachel and I, like we said previously, have an email for the podcast. If you'd like to contact us, let's talk about speech podcast at gmail.com. Email us with questions, concerns. Melissa, email us to grab your giveaway. Just putting that extra one out there real quick. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please let us know if you have any questions about this episode. Uh, We will definitely reach out to Hallie because again, we are newbies too at this and we learned a lot. It was a really informative episode for us as well. Thanks for listening. Bye.